Good morning. Welcome to Greater Than Code. I'm Jessica Kerr, and I'm happy to be here today with my co-host, Jamie Hampton. Thanks, Jess. And I'm really pleased to be on the show with my co-host and friend, John Sowers. Thank you, Jamie. And I'm here with our guest, Chris Stead. Chris works as a software developer specializing in JavaScript, developing for the web and server environments, as well as authoring developer tools. He has led workshops and spoken at a number of meetups, private events, and conferences, most recently at Deliver Agile. He also spends his evenings teaching software development. When he isn't teaching, Chris plays in a rock band and spends time with his wife and daughter. Welcome to the show, Chris. Thanks, John. Excited to be here. So we're going to kick it off with a question that we always ask at the beginning of the show. Uh, So what is your superpower and how did you acquire it? I knew this was coming and I I did lots and lots and lots of thinking about it. And the more that I thought about it, the less I I knew about it. So um, what I realized is that I I do a really good job of not knowing in public. Very good. The way that I acquired that, it kind of came from, to start, it came from when I was in college, I majored in math and I minored in philosophy. and, And both of those disciplines specialize in not knowing. Um, I don't know this. Let's find out. Uh, I don't know that. You know, what do I know that can lead me there? And so I spend a lot of time kind of saying, well, I don't know that. Let's find out. I try to share that with the other people that I'm around rather than trying to just stand there and be the expert and pontificate. <laughs> I have that superpower too, I think. That's I feel awesome. like so often people come on and I'm like, wow, how'd you learn how to do that? Wouldn't it be great? But like, I feel that like I used to, when I was new in tech, I felt so like stupid when I had to ask a question and I was like so nervous to ask, ask a question because people would think I like didn't know anything or whatever. So like, as I started to feel more like, okay, I do know stuff and like people respect me, maybe hopefully they won't think that about me. I started asking questions very loudly because I was like, there are other people I bet on this call who also don't know this, who are like more embarrassed to ask about it than me. Yeah. My students do that a lot. They're, they're like, well, I don't know if I should ask this. I'm like, if you're thinking about asking, you probably should because you're not the only person. Sometimes I even ask if I do know and pretend like I don't know so that other people hear the explanation without having to ask. I think that's, that's awesome. Great. I love that. <laughs> so, Chris, one of the things that you said that you've been thinking a lot lately when we talked before the show is about source documents and it strikes me that that's similar to what you're talking about with your superpower because it's about like learning things and teaching them and knowing them and having everyone know them. So I'd love to chat about that. It says, lately I've been thinking a lot about source documents and their relation to people. Um, yeah. and I would love to hear like your general philosophy on that to start out with. I think the biggest thing when thinking about source documents, at least the way that I think about them, is if we look at Grace Hopper's work and we kind of say like, okay, why did she create a compiler? What was the value in this? She wasn't creating it so that way we could more effectively write hex or binary. It was it was so that way we could write source documents that are actually English or English-like. So that way, basically, we're we're writing a document in a human-readable way and something that you know that makes sense to people. And, you know, I've heard people talk about like, well, I, I optimize my source to make sure that it's, you know, as fast as possible and that kind of thing. And it's like, but then it's not human readable anymore. There are things that you're going to have to optimize. You're going to discover that something is too slow or it could be changed in a way that serves the user better. But those things aren't, they're not the norm. The norm is that you're going to have people that are going to come back later and they're going to need to maintain that code. 
And the more that you can put context in the code, the more that you can put a story about what happened last, the easier it is for the next person to discover what you meant and why you meant it. And so it's much more comfortable to come in saying, I'm not certain, but I can find out and I have the right things to lead me to questions. And that's really where I kind of come from with with source documents is they are for people. They're not for the computer. The computer actually ultimately digests something else. And even interpreted languages ultimately are run through an interpreter and then run on a virtual machine. Right. I read the phrase the other day, the critical complexity. You need to figure out what's the critical complexity of your app or the components of your app. And sometimes that's performance. Sometimes it's network bandwidth if you're on a really, really technical project. But usually the critical complexity is in the domain. And that's what we communicate when we write code for people. Right. I agree. Uh, and actually, uh, I was fortunate enough to start going to meetups with Indu Alagarsami. She runs uh, a meetup in Southern California all about domain-driven design. And she started talking about exactly that, Jess, what you were talking about with the complexity of the domain and the complexity of the software. And the complexity of the software, it's really easy to have that just like spiral out of control. And so by trying to come back and meet the complexity of the domain as close as possible, you start to model that domain. And then all of a sudden it parallels that, which which leads us to exactly what you're saying, the the complexity of, of the domain being the main complexity of the, of the project. Yeah, when I was working with um, boot camp students, um, like they would often get sent over to um, some sort of code kata like website where they'd look at different ways of writing the same algorithm, and pretty much universally they'd all say, "Oh man, look at all the short, you know, really concise code that I don't really even understand. That must be the best code. I wish I could write code like that." <laughs> and I would every time I would have to push back and say. No, <laughs> like this is useful for like stretching your muscles and thinking about the language and learning its features, but you really almost never want to write that into a production code. Right. Yeah. That's its own little game and it's a cute game and have fun with that. But when you're playing the infinite game of ongoing software development and production code, please aim for future humans. That brings me to a question, which is like, how do you encourage or like legislate almost like on your team? Like, this is what we're going to do with our code. How do you like get other people to do that? <laughs> legislate is a really strong word. I would say that I, <laughs> I, I lean more into the encouragement um, because sometimes sometimes you win, sometimes you lose when you have those arguments. Right. It's, you know, and and it is OK to, to lose the argument. It is OK to say, you know what? OK, we're, we're just going to do it that way. Because that's what makes sense makes sense to you right now. And I don't think that person's buy-in is more important than whatever the argument is. Exactly. So typically, what I try to do is model what I want people to to lean into. Uh, and even when I'm teaching, I I tend to say, you know what, this name. So we have some canned code, and this name right here. It doesn't make sense to me. It's an abbreviation. It doesn't mean something that, that the rest of the world could read. So I'm just going to rename that right here. And, you know, I'm using an IDE. So I have refactoring tools. I just hit F2 and I rename and I move on, right? So you can rely on a bunch of those built-in refactorings as well to help people just start to kind of budge the needle. In domain-driven design, there's this idea of event storming. So event storming basically is a way to get together with stakeholders and product owners and 
developers and everybody and you just kind of start saying, okay, this is, uh, this is a, a business event that's going to happen. Somebody wants a refund. Somebody wants to make an order. Somebody, you know, does whatever. And so they're just like these high level business events. And then you start figuring out like, okay, so user requested a refund. It's always, uh, it's always past tense. Okay. So issue refund would be the command. And that's always present tense imperative. Then you would have some sort of like, okay, this is the next event or let me see. Gosh, I, there's a piece that I'm missing. But nevertheless, the reason why I bring that up is because I did a simplification of that. So that way you could do like just unit level discovery where it's like, okay, so user clicked the submit refund button. What is the thing that the system is going to do to handle that behavior? So then you kind of go through and say, well, the command is do the issue refund bit and the outcome should be the refund was issued, but that could fail, right? So now you, you have two cases, at least, you know, refund couldn't be issued or refund was issued. And by doing that, you're now speaking even in the small about the problem space and the domain. And, and, uh, and so I call this eco mapping because it's event command outcome. And I use that a lot with my team to help them discover the things that, that they need in order to make sense of the problem in the small piece, that little unit that we're working on right now and how it plays into the larger problem. So rather than making rules, like creating culture, I feel like it's what you're getting at. Yeah, ideally, series. yes. <laughs> I, well, I mean, yeah. I, well, creating <laughs> a language. Yes. Yeah, that's, you know how people love to like invent programming languages and they want like the perfect programming language for their particular problem? I we do actually, know that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's the thing. We actually do get to create a language for every application, but it's the domain language. I agree. And it's a hard one to create, like, because that goes back to, you know, naming things is hard. That's the work of the software development is getting that right. And I think we tend to think about it mostly not in those terms unless we're trained in, in DDD that it's just like, Oh, a series of procedures and methods and callbacks and whatever. And then you lose sight of, of what the actual thing is. Absolutely. Arlo Belshi has, uh, has this thing that, that he, I don't know if he devised it or if he had, anyway, he talks a lot about the seven stages of naming and so you start off with something that has no name. So you go from missing to nonsense, from nonsense to honest, from honest to honest and complete, and so on through this path. And I can't remember all of them right now because I don't have it in front of me. But basically, you end up at this place where you're at a domain abstraction, right? And so missing would just be like, I have a magic number. I have this you know, conditional that is meaningless now, that kind of thing. And so the idea is to just iteratively name things. And it's just as you discover you know, that's kind of what I've discovered is, is good for them. I like that progression from missing to nonsense to honest to complete. Is that right? Uh, yeah. Uh, missing to nonsense, nonsense to honest, 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 complete. Actually, um, <laughs> John just posted a link and I can't remember all of them. But yes, that's that's it. That's the progression. Yeah, because I said earlier that we create a language, but largely we discover it. Not totally. It doesn't all exist yet. And we wind up finding concepts that no one talked about, but really are essential to the domain, whether they sometimes those are abstractions, sometimes those are really specific. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, I'm really excited to read that piece because like I'd say 40% of my pull request feedback is about the names of things. Uh, and so having a framework for understanding those and, and, and iterating into better ones, I think would be really useful. 
Yeah, it's fantastic. I, I love the work that he did with it. Yeah, I think the link that you post, I think that link that you have is his old post. So you might want to take a look at that because he has a whole new like series of articles about it. And so you can actually go through that. And he, he details every single one of the steps and says, like, here's how this one works and here's why you do it and what have you, which can be really useful for understanding how to kind of make those moves. Yeah, and clearly we should have Arlo on the show, too. Yeah, I think he would have a lot of really useful stuff to say. We were talking about a narrative earlier, and I feel like that's a really important word to highlight, especially in teaching, but in also just in communicating about code. Uh, and like I've always felt like tutorials where they name all the things A, B, and C are so much harder to follow than tutorials where it's like, you know, we're running the factory that makes widgets. Let's, you know, add widget feature, you know, door handle. And like just having those like non-abstract things to follow along makes it easier. And I would imagine it applies in a lot of other cases that you've noticed. Uh, can you talk some more about that? Yeah. So, you know, I, I heard you mention like using A, B, and C widgets, that kind of thing. And actually I found, because I, my old example code used to use a lot of like widget and, you know, widgetizer and, you know, that kind of thing. And I found that people would go, well, I don't, I don't know what a widget is either. I don't know what, what A, B, and C are. And so widget is better, but then widget is still confusing. So I've, I've started now to kind of say, what is some thing that we can talk about? It has a name and someone understands it and it doesn't have to be magical. It could just be razor blades because everybody understands what a razor blade is. So you can talk about like, this is a blade maker and this is the like multi-blade head assembly. And this is, you know, because, you know, you can, you can model any kind of physical work or whatever within code. And it doesn't even have to really mean anything uh, other than like, I'm going to just assemble this stuff and store the outcome in some way. And so then people can start to actually follow along. They've got concrete stuff. So they don't, they no longer have to try to, digest this like okay i'm working with a widget what did that mean what was that again oh yeah it was a widget and it has it has a hum and it has a display and it has you know whatever so they, they it's something that that already has properties that they understand another beauty of that is that you can call the user something other than user because they're yeah. they're either assembler or in the case of razors i guess they're they're shavers yeah exactly it could be a buyer, right? It's like the buyer, this person that's purchasing a razor blade for whomever, right? If you're, let's say that you've got a buyer for a company and they want to buy 10 cases of five blade razors and three cases of the two blade razor heads and what have you, they, you know, that one, <laughs> you know, that's, it's still something that would, that would be totally meaningful. So it could be a shaver, it could be a buyer, it could be uh, a whomever. You're exactly right. I think expanding Sorry. beyond tutorial examples, uh, what, are there other places uh, that you found that like narratives are really important in software? So yeah, the narrative in business is that's something that that I really love because it's I view it as being almost like uh, like a, a biography of the product that you're building or the problem that you're trying to solve because they tend to be bigger than just like here's my toy problem. Uh, it tends to be well this works with that 
works with this other thing. So for instance, like I work for an irrigation company. And so we have controllers and we have sprinklers and we have various different other systems that irrigate in various different ways. And all that stuff ties together in, you know, with solenoids and pipes and, you know, and all that stuff has meaning in the system. And so now it's not just simply, I have this one particular head, it sprays in a particular way, but it's, I have this array of heads. I have this assembly. I have this site that needs these things. And all of a sudden now you're talking about a really rich story about the domain. And there's a lot that you can, that you can say about the domain in that story. So you can say it, it was born of this need. This particular type of customer needs these things. So, you know, we have a distributor. The distributor needs these things. We have people that are on site that are installing things. They need X number of solenoids and so many feet of drip line and so many heads and what have you. And they need a controller that can control this many solenoids, which, which then all of a sudden now it's like we have, we need to be able to program it and we need to be able to ensure that that the program runs at the right time and that various different uh, solenoids are actually interleaved so that way you use the least amount of water and maximize the, the amount of efficacy within the shortest amount of time. You know, So all of this stuff starts to kind of tie together and it does create an actual story. And if you can have some domain abstraction that says, this is what I know, and you have another abstraction somewhere else that says, this is this other thing that I know, and you have a third piece that says, this is how those two, those two pieces work together. Then you're now speaking in a language where someone can actually read that story and uh, they can edit that story and they can say, I, you know, I'm going to go back and understand what these pieces mean. And if they do have questions, like I've never heard of this thing before, I've never worked in the irrigation industry before, so I have no idea what this particular term means. What they can is now, a solenoid? Yeah, exactly. What is a solenoid? They could go to the product owner. They could go to some other person that's in the industry and say, what is a solenoid? And of course, they would get the answer. You know, I say, of course, that's like just, right? It's this, it's this, well, of course, everybody should know this, which is never the case. You know, they would say, well, a solenoid is a device that turns the water on and off when you apply an electrical charge. And of course, this program would say, huh, I've never thought about that kind of hard work because I built software, right? So all of a sudden it leads you to asking the right questions about the domain. You, you said it leads you to ask you the right questions. You said something about that earlier too. And yeah. yeah, that's so important. It's not the answers that we need to get to so much as the right questions. Right. Yeah. Software is all about learning. And the more that we, that we can facilitate that learning, the better off we're going to be. I think a phrase that I hear people use sometimes is like my Google foo. Yes. And like, it's kind of silly, but like, I think that like being able to like get stuck doing something in your work and like compose a Google search that will find you the thing you need is like a real skill. And it's an it important has. skill for us in our industry. I agree. I have my students practice that all the time. I actually, I make mistakes in class and it's, they're honest mistakes. It's not something where, where I make a mistake in quotes and like, oops, I better fix that. Here, I'm going to do this completely contrived thing. I own mistakes. If I if I forgot something, I say, I forgot. Let's go look up the documentation. 
because it's more important for them to see that everybody forgets and everybody has to go and look things up. And they also get to see how I learn and how I discover. And I hope that I'm giving them a good model that they can build from because ultimately they're going to have to learn how they learn. But if they know that everybody has to learn, then at least they can start pursuing that. So, uh, yeah, Google Foo is, is absolutely a thing. And my last job, I did, um, like technical interviews. Like we did like pairing. So I would be on coding. It wasn't really a live coding exercise as much as like a collaboration exercise. And people would, I'd be like, you know, oh, well, if you don't know like the syntax, just like look it up. And they're like, I can Google it like right when I'm on the interview call with you. I'm like, yeah, it's not like a test. Like, I would Google it if I didn't know it when I was working. Like, that's what happens. That's what you do. And actually, I think it was really useful to see what they would Google and what they would look at. Absolutely. Oh, my gosh. We we actually do mobbing interviews. We have whoever's coming in. We have them actually sit down and work with mobbers to actually solve the problem. So the first thing we have them do is just write some code to kind of loosen up. It's simple stuff that really should be kind of muscle memory, but the the goal is not to see whether or not they can remember this thing. It's to get them loosened up so they can actually think. And then from there, the rest of the time is all spent saying, okay, here person, this is this is what I want to accomplish. And so we'll have a mobber that's that's acting as a driver and then they can navigate and say, I want to accomplish this. I don't know how to do that. Let's take a look at this thing. And so what we really look for is exactly what you're what you're describing, Jamie. It's, you know, are they looking stuff up when they don't know? Are they asking questions? Are they communicating? Are they collaborating? Are they able to work in a team to build and edit source documents? That sounds like a very realistic, like maybe even useful interview. I've really enjoyed it. We have a lot of candidates that when they leave, they're like, wow, that was super fun. I'm really glad that I did that, which is lovely. I always, I always feel good when I hear that. So I don't, I, I would rather people walk away feeling like they learned something, they got something of value because it's four hours out of their day. So why, why would we not provide them with some value? They shouldn't feel like they came in and they were just kind of our entertainment for the day, you know, code and we shall watch you. <laughs> you know, we, <laughs> We we want to see them actually interact in a way that that everybody's gaining something. Well, and you put them into a system that is similar to a real work system because everyone's a different person in different contexts. Exactly. That is something that that's really interesting that happens is you'll actually watch people change throughout the interview as they become more comfortable. The problems are, you know, we have like a debugging problem, we have a refactoring problem, we have a, a SQL problem, we have a software design problem. Those are all things to just get them thinking in different ways. But as they go through, you see them shift. So the first one, they're kind of like, I just have to get it right. I just have to do the right thing. And I have to, you know, and by the end, they're kind of like, well, you know, let me think about that for a minute. And then you get to start really seeing what they do and how they how they actually think and communicate and yeah it's it's pretty magical uh and then plus at the end we do a lean coffee and so everybody kind of sits and chats and says like what do you like and what do you do for fun and you know rather than just like you know why did you leave your last job because everybody has a story for why they left their last job or why they're leaving that's something that will emerge over time it's never that that brief answer 
Yeah, I, I like that you were talking about getting a candidate to the point where they can say, you know, let me think about that for a minute. Like, that is an amazingly good sign at the level of comfort you've been able to, to create with someone, which I think is so important. Because like, like you were saying, the moment when you walk into that interview room, it's, you're all wound up super tight oh, yeah. and you're not going to be creative and you're not going to be collaborative because you're under stress. And so being able to like wind people down and get them into their natural state where they can uh, work effectively is uh, like that in itself is a powerful process even aside from the fact that it tells you all this other things about how they work and tells them what the work environment is like and how supportive the team is and all that stuff. Absolutely. I was on one interview. I've only ever really had one interview that just went horribly, horribly awry. There, there are times where we've had people come in and they're just, they are brand new. They're still in the process of learning. They're not able to actually work effectively in a, a software environment yet. Uh, and I put yet in there because I, I'm certain that in time, it's a skill and they'll build it. But there was one particular case where somebody came in and sat down. And there were three of us there. And they looked at the computer and they looked at us and they said, uh, I'm sorry, I can't do this. And they stood up and left. They didn't touch the keyboard. They didn't talk to anybody. They didn't ask any questions. They just like shook and then left. I felt terrible. You know, because that that was somebody where I'm certain that if they'd been willing to have the conversation and if we could have found a way to start the conversation, they would have started to become more comfortable. They were so intimidated by the fact that they were going to have to talk to more than one person that I I don't know. I, I was I was I was lacking the skill at the time to be able to negotiate that that circumstance, I think is probably the way I'm trying to say it. it definitely. Like I've worked with people in the, in the, uh, who have had, you know almost panic responses at the thought of going in and trying to talk about code with, with like, especially more than one person and, oh, yeah. and like finding ways to accommodate that. And I like the way you were saying about how, like you're focusing on what you can do right at that beginning point. Like how, how can you get them to just into that, like slightly starting to loosen up and more getting more comfortable so that you can then get them down the rest of the curve. It's so important because there, there certainly are people who are going to freak out when they, realize what that situation looks like. Absolutely. I always empathize because I remember some of my very first interviews. I mean, they were forever ago. It was back in 19, <clears throat> but nevertheless, I remember those interviews even still because some of them were so terrifying. And there were some interviews where the people really did a nice job of saying, you know what, let's talk for a second. Let's just see what's, what's on your mind versus, you know, there were others where, You'd come in and they would just say, what can you do? What can you do for us? Slinks. Okay. Yeah. Didn't test on Java syntax. <laughs> mm. So transactional. Yeah. Well, you know, on that, that comment, Jess, I mean, you're saying, you know, it's, it's transactional and you're, you're, you're right. When businesses start remembering that it's people, you know, it's people all the way down. It's people who are who are working for the business. It's people who are developing the software. It's people that we're delivering the software to. And I mean, even if you're developing a system that's an API for other for other computers to use, you're still ultimately building that for people because without people, why would you bother to build something at all? So the more that we can refocus on the people that are involved in the system, and the more that we can refocus on having people collaborate together and work on the software together and focus their attention on 
the people that are going to use the software and the people that care about the software and the stakeholders that are trying to deliver software to people, the more that we can focus on all of that, the better off that I think everybody will be businesses, developers, managers, all of us. That's practically a mantra for this show. It's people all the way down. I love it. <laughs> that's actually why I started listening to the show. I mean, I've been listening to the show for a couple of years now. And that's exactly why I started listening to the show is it just really spoke to my soul. There needs to be a lot of empathy in like this whole process. And I think that me having done interviews from the company side and like thought a lot about how to make people comfortable and how to do interviews that feel like fair and useful and empathetic has helped me a lot. Like now I'm job hunting and I have a lot of anxiety about this kind of thing also. And I'm in this other seat and it's given me, I think some confidence in that, like if I go into walk into an interview and I'm treated a way that I don't think is empathetic or fair because I've done that. I think I'm better at now being like, well, I don't like what you just did in your interview. And I don't like the way I was treated. Like that's good information for me about yes. if I want to work at your company or not. Whereas like before I didn't have this experience and I would just feel like bad about myself. Like I fail, I did bad and I failed it. And like, I've been thinking a lot about that lately and the empathy that's involved on both sides and kind of like the confidence on both sides. Almost if people are empowered in interviews to be themselves and be more like act normal and act like how you want to act, if everyone could do that, then it would be such a better process for everyone involved because you would, everyone would get a better idea of what they're walking into with their company and with their candidate. And like people can't do that because we've made it this like extremely stressful thing. <laughs> I agree. I think the more that we can serve the people that are coming in to interview, I think the better off that we're going to be. We're going to find people that are going to be well-suited to do the job when we treat them kindly to start. We assume that they're going to do well. And something that I, you know, I was saying before that I, I lacked the skills in that first interview, it was a long time ago. At this point, it was years ago. But now, one of the first things that I say when I talk to people is, we're on your side and we want to see you at your best. And I highlight that because I want people to know that we would rather see them struggle and succeed than see them quietly suffer until the end of the interview and then go out with their head slung low. And it seems to work out okay. I think that's great because you said that it like makes it better for like your like hiring, but I think like treating people kindly in this way also, even if you don't, if it doesn't end up being a good fit and you don't end up hiring them, I think you're also empowering them to feel like they deserve to be treated that way in other situations. I really hope so. <laughs> I hope so too. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's powerful to give someone that experience of an interview where even if they don't get the job or really doesn't work out for whatever reason, they still felt completely respected and like to realize that, that that's actually a possibility and that you could actually have that experience interviewing somewhere. Like that's, a, I think, a pretty powerful mind shift, mindset shift for someone to go through, especially uh, uh, if, if their entire experience is based on, you know, unpleasant interviews. Um, and then they can start saying, just like you, you were saying, Jamie, like, 
oh, maybe it's not just me being a terrible person that makes these interviews horrible. It's like that the system is kind of broken. And then you can step out of it a little bit and not take it as a referendum on your worth as a human being and say, oh, okay, so this is what they're doing this process. And, you know, it's got these problems. And, okay, either, either I've still determined that it's a company that I'd like to work with because I can see the humanity of the people I was with despite the system. Or you could say, well, clearly they have no consideration for people as humans. Like, I don't even care if I get a call back. Like, now I know that I don't need to care about this company. And those are both incredibly empowering. You said something that I thought was really interesting because they, you were saying, that, you know, they see whether or not another team is considering people as, as people or as humans. And something that I've noticed, because every so often I take an interview just to kind of see what's going on out there. What are people doing? How are they interviewing? And it's typically that like intro call, that like screening call. And I found that in thinking about the interview process and thinking about just treating people as people, that even when a department seems to be geared toward kind of dehumanizing and mechanizing people. I can still find that humanity in the person that I'm talking with just because at some point they start letting their guard down. I'm so used to now talking to people and assuming that there is a, a human in there that by the end of the conversation, like, wow, I didn't, huh. And we both kind of walk away with this new experience because now I've, I've gotten a chance to talk with, talk to someone who's experiencing something, something different than I have. And likewise, they're talking with someone that is experiencing life in a different way than their department is currently too. So it, it, it has really made a positive impact on my experience with other people. And I don't mean it as in like it's changed the way that they view me, but rather the way that I view the rest of the world, which has been really wonderful for me. Yeah, I think actually what you described there is, is sort of a step beyond what I was just describing, which is like that ability to step back and sort of feel like you have a bit more control of the process. Whereas like you're sort of going the next level up and saying, well, I have the choice about whether to come into this situation and treat everybody else as humans also. And maybe I could even influence the process enough that, that it could become more humane uh, just by the way I come into it rather than coming into it, being freaked out and, and tense and worried about what's going to happen. Like, now I've got that, that confidence that I could actually influence it and bring it into something that, that would be a pleasure for, for everybody involved. That's my hope. Most of my experience at this point now, uh, and I don't mean experiences and work experience. I, I mean, just kind of like the way that I've been trying to kind of shift how I experience the world is really human focused. I'm kind of a latecomer to the party, but I've been reading People Wear. And I also have a couple of books from Jerry Weinberg. Yes. Um, oh, yeah. I just read Secrets of Consulting a few months ago, and it was amazing. Oh, I haven't read that one, but I, I, he's he's on my short list. I've got I've got a little stack of books, and I'm just working my way through them. But I read The Mythical Man Month, and I loved it because I mean, this is we're talking about basically a 50 year old book at this point. And 50 years ago, Fred Brooks was saying. People. It's all about people. And yet we still haven't figured that out as an industry in the last 50 years. And then I also read uh, Cathedral and Bazaar. I'm just kind of looking at my bookshelf to make sure that I don't forget the titles. And that was another one. It's like, you can build software and you can lock it away in a safe or you can make it available so everybody can see the source. And then people can work together to make it better for people. And it's just like, there's this theme 
and it's magical. I, I really, I'm really enjoying it because it's, it's recalibrating how I look at code every single day because I, every day I ask a question like, is this serving me or someone else better? And if it's not, then I ask, how could it? And it doesn't have to be that huge sweeping. We're going to rewrite the whole system to serve everybody right now. It's we're looking at this thing. Can we make it work a little bit better for the next person? Can we make it a little bit easier for the next person to build context more immediately? Can we make it, John, as you said, more humane? Can we actually make that whole experience of working in the code more humane? So a friend of mine who actually, uh, he's, he's the person that recommended me for the show, Willem. He chatted with, I don't remember who he was talking with, but Willem Larson. He and I worked together with, uh, with my friend Jason. The three of us were looking at code and it was code that was written by someone else. And we knew roughly when it was written and why it was written. And we could tell just by looking at the code that it was written in a panic. And just looking at it, just trying to work through it made all of us feel really anxious. And it was because not only did they write the code in kind of a harried way, it, the code actually stores that emotional energy. The way you write it conveys what you were feeling. And if code can convey what you're feeling, it's it's clearly for people and it's clearly written by people because other people can actually feel some sense of what you were feeling at the time. And so when we would come across that stuff, if it, if it was something that was impacting what we were working on, we would make a, a conscious effort to go and try to weed some of that harried, panicked emotion out of there and put some more calm, thoughtful energy in. Because when you're feeling calm and thoughtful about what you're building then other people will feel more calm and thoughtful when they come back. And, you know, this brings us right back to, you know, ultimately, if you're reading that, it's like reading a good book. You know, it's like sitting down with that old friend, the page turner, and you understand it and it says something to you and speaks to you in a way that, um, that you can walk away and go, I'm thankful I read that. That actually, that made my day a little bit better. And that's really what I would love to see in all the source documents that we produce. Uh, there's no promise because there's always going to be that time when you're just like panicked and just like trying to like, can I just make it work? I don't. Uh, uh, it works. Good enough. I got to walk away. Right. That will be there. That will live in that code now. But that's also okay. Right. It, when you know that it stores that emotion, it gives you a lot more empathy toward the person that wrote it last, because ultimately that understanding that they were probably feeling this when they wrote it, you can now look at it and say, I understand why. I understand why I'm feeling uncomfortable right now. I understand why this code is not written the way that I would like to see it, because they were probably feeling something. They were probably experiencing something that was making it difficult for them to make choices that would make it easier for someone else to digest the code or to work in this code. It wasn't the person and it wasn't conscious. It was the system that they were in at the time and how it impacted the moves that they made. That whole idea of energy stored in code is really what, what kind of drives me. No, I love that. Yeah, and it, it ties in with, I think, a point mm. we've probably mentioned a couple times on the show, which is that, you know, I think some people default to 
Like you read some code like that and you say, well, this person was a terrible developer or they write a lot of bad code or whatever it is because you strip it like of all the context of like why it was written that way. But, but bringing in that empathy of saying, oh, well, you know, I can really tell like this was written because they had to like patch something in production in 10 minutes or they were worried about their job or whatever it was. You have that empathy for why it was written the way it was written. And you say, oh, okay, you know, that's some, some stuff was going down at the time. But now we have now and now we're calm and collected and we can make some make this better and and pass on the good vibes to the next people. Hopefully, hopefully. I think that's really important, too, if you still work with that person. Yeah, like nobody, nobody likes for their name to come up on like get blame and then someone's yelling at them about something they did two years ago. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Yeah. Well, and I mean, if it's code that you wrote two years ago, I mean, I look at code that I wrote two years ago and I'm like, boy, that was a mistake. <laughs> but it's because I'm looking at it with, with eyes that are educated in a different way now. And actually, that brings back uh, right to the education thing we were talking about earlier, where like trying to talk to, you know, early career developers, people are still learning coding about that experience of, uh, and it takes a while because you need some months to pass. But if you have them go back yes. and look at their early projects and say, like, A, like, it looks like terrible code because now you're better at coding. It's a good way to show progress. But also, B, like, look how easy it was for you to forget all the details about this code when you were, like, even it was only a month ago that you wrote this because so much has happened since then. And so this is why we're paying attention to the way we're writing it and the way we're communicating about it and making it understandable to other humans because those other humans may very well be you. Absolutely. And, they, you know, oftentimes it is at some point. If you're at your job long enough, going to happen. Something I actually brought up with a student of mine last night, um, well, actually, there were a couple of things, and both of them play in directly to what you're talking about there as far as that experience of looking back. There are a couple of graphs that I really like, and of course, this is this is a non-visual medium, so it's going to be really hard to, to see what I'm waving my hands about. But if you imagine your progress, it's going to be monotonic in a direction, right? It's going to basically go up and to the left and uh, then your experience, actually what you're going to see as you work through that is, is there's going to be uh, this sinusoidal movement across that line. Even if you're at a plateau, you're never going to get worse as you learn, right? You'll never be worse today than you were yesterday for having learned something new. You'll always be the same or better, right? So, what you're experiencing is actually what's defining how you feel of the day. You're feeling on top of the world because you feel like you've learned something new and you're mastering it. Now, all of a sudden, you've swooped below. I feel like I don't know anything. I'm looking at this and I don't understand what I'm doing. Now, all of a sudden, I feel on top of the world again. And it's not, you know, there are those memes that go around that say, you know, one minute, I'm amazing. And the next minute is, I'm so terrible. You know, people ref reflect that by looking at their code and saying, well, I don't understand this code, so I'm terrible. And really what it is, is you're experiencing this, I don't understand how to solve this problem yet. And so I'm feeling bad about it. I'm, I'm struggling in some way and it, and it's causing me to have kind of an emotional dip. So really it's just this sinus kind of move. And then the other thing, and I know that I'm not the first person to, to say this because I got it from someone, but there's like the valley of despair. So when you first start and you're learning, there are all these resources and everything is learning and every little thing is, is an order of magnitude better than what you were doing before. But 
eventually that runs out, right? There's only so much that you can do that's brand new that you've never seen before because eventually you, you start to the, the things that are new become fewer and longer between. So all of this stuff that's kind of condensed at the beginning starts to spread out. And so you feel worse about it and it becomes harder to find resources to, to drive you forward in new directions, right? You kind of feel a little lost at sea. And so you kind of do this swoop downward into the valley of despair. And this is kind of your like beginning is high. Then your mid, you know, like your early mid career years are kind of low because you just don't know where to look or who to turn to. And then as you start to kind of finally make those new discoveries and you find a community that makes sense to you, then you climb out of the valley of despair. And then your career really kind of moves into this new place where you're feeling okay about things again. And now when you discover something you don't know, instead of feeling like you know, you're disappointed that you're not better at this. You're feeling like you've discovered something new that you can explore. And so all of these things kind of help to bolster your mood. So even though you still go through those little swoops of up and down, you you have this this movement. And um, Rain isn't here, so I'm just going to say, so Virginia Satir would talk about this as the... <laughs> uh, <laughs> but yes, I mean, it, it does kind of mirror that, that satire change model, but in, in a different way, right? It's, and it's personal and it's, it's distinct for every person. Earlier when you were talking about our writing, reflecting our feelings, you said something about when you're reading a piece of code or a document or something, having the feeling of like, I'm glad I read this and it made my day easier or better. Mm-hmm. And I really liked that. But I'm wondering, like, how do you determine if something you're writing is going to do that? Because I, sometimes I think about like, this is helpful for me when I'm thinking about it. How do you go about trying to decide, like, will this be helpful for someone else? I kind of assume that it's not my place to to know whether it will be better for someone else. All I can do is make it better for for me and the people that I'm working with at the time. Because I figure if if I do that, somebody else will come along and say, "Oh, I can make this better," and then they'll add some improvement. So it's I don't think that it's it's a one pass and done. I think it takes a lot of people over time to build that. Uh, and this is actually why I've really been using that metaphor of a book, at least mentally. I've only talked about it a little bit is because you can go and edit and edit and edit. You don't, it doesn't have to be this one final document. It's not, I mean, a book is eventually published, but ultimately, I mean, the source code will iteratively go through editing process and every one of us is both an author and an editor, but in all likelihood, we're going to edit someone else's work. And we're going to author new work and then someone else is going to edit our work and then they're going to author new work. And so all of that will come together, hopefully, to create that experience of a wonderful experience for someone. Nice. Nice. So it's not your responsibility alone to write right. the humane code. It takes more of humanity than just you. Right. Exactly. I like that. It's a, it's a big burden to put on yourself if you're like, you know, I'm the one who has to fix all of this in my organization or whatever. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, it, it's <laughs> if you're if you're feeling that way, then either your organization is probably putting some burden on you that's unfair or possibly you're being unfair to yourself. And you can offload some of that responsibility to the others around you because they would love to feel empowered. Yeah. OK, now reflections. 
I have a reflection. I just love the bit about how code can convey emotions that it kind of captures your feeling at the time. Like sometimes the characters really do look different if I hit the key harder. Usually it's just that I'm naming with expletives, but, but still that the code itself can make you calmer and more thoughtful when those are the feelings that went into it. So even the code can be greater than code. I love it. I can go next. So for me, I think I don't think we were expecting to dive into like interviewing and hiring uh, questions with this, but I love how we just so effortlessly smoothed right into that process because it is part of the interface between humans and coding is that, that job acquisition process. And, and it's so important and right now so broken for most of the industry. And so thinking like the way that you put, we're talking about um, structuring your interviews and, and with the goals around, um, you know, comfort and familiarity and getting people into that place where they can actually perform at their best is really striking to me and something I'm going to keep thinking about for quite a while. I too was thinking about the conversation about your imbuing things with the feeling when you wrote it, because I, I think that it's cool that it kind of has an action item on like both sides, because we talked a lot about like reading code and like feeling those feelings of whoever wrote it. But I think it also like says something about like what you can do. Like if I'm feeling frustrated and I write a note in the code about my frustration, like that's helpful but maybe like I could write it in a way where I'm thinking about like who's going to read it and how it's going to immediately make them feel like there could be two notes that give someone the same takeaway about my frustration and what I was going through when I wrote this code, but it could be written in different ways where one of them is like, I'm yelling and I immediately like stress out this new person with like my stress. Whereas another one can be like, you know, here's the context, but I'm trying to present this in like a kind way where like if you realize that someone else is going to be feeling your feelings, you can like set them up in like a better way. Even if they feel it either way, you can set them up in like a better space to feel that, I think. And I think that's a cool action item for like thinking about how I express that into my code intentionally instead of accidentally. (laughs) I appreciate where where you were going with that. And the one the one thing that I would encourage anybody that's feeling that to think about is that if you're feeling frustrated, kind is great. And I encourage you, if you if you are in a space where you can stop and say, I'm going to try to be kind with this, but sometimes you don't have it in you. And so you're just going to, you're going to do the best you can at the time. And so I don't, I wouldn't want anybody to feel like, well, I have a responsibility and due diligence for the next person. It's kind of like, I'm going to do the best I've got right now. I'm going to give it my best. And hopefully the next person will empathize with where I was, understand that maybe something was going on that had me feeling uncomfortable because ultimately there's only so much you can do. And I, don't, I wouldn't want anybody to feel like there's this emphasis that the burden is now on them to make the next person feel good because you can't make anybody feel anyway. They're going to feel how they feel. But if they start with a place of empathy, if they look at look at the code and they start with, I understand that that this person was feeling this way, or maybe they're having a bad day and they're cursing everybody that's in the code, you know, that, but 
I mean, just knowing that that person did the best they could and being able to come back at some point and say, okay, I'm letting it go. I'm taking a breath. And now I'm going to come back into this with, with a clear head. Then they'll be able to better understand where you are at. So don't take all the responsibility. Leave them with, with room. You can't create someone's whole experience, but you can like try to set them up for success. Sure. You, you can, you can definitely give it your best. And actually, uh, you know, as far as reflecting, I don't know, I don't know that I have any, any new thing to add. Uh, John, much like you, I was really surprised that we ended up in the interview space, but I loved it because I, I do believe that, that everything is a systemic whole. There is no, this piece and that slice and these are not connected because the the makeup is the whole system and things that come and go things that flow through you know and i'm i'm back in in willem larsen land because it's it is the thermodynamics of emotion it is that how are people experiencing this whole together and so the interview process will will impact that because the people that are going in there will bring what they feel at work. And the people that come into the interview that are interviewing will also bring their experience from the outside. And so that will actually change, even if it's just momentarily, will actually change the way that the day goes, which will impact the way that the document is created, which, you know, has upstream and downstream effects. That's great. That's a great place to end. Thank you so much for coming on. Yeah, thank you all for you. having me. I really appreciate all of you. It's been a real joy getting a chance to actually chat with all of you because I spend so much time on the other side <laughs> listening. Yay. And so so it's really awesome to to get a chance to actually chat with you all and get your thoughts on. That's really cool. It's like we have a really cool community of like greater than code and like the people we've had on and the people who listen and the people who participate and like our Slack and everything. And so like, it's particularly cool to have someone on the show who's like already a part of that community. Yeah. It's big hearts. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, Chris. And thank you to all of our listeners who are tuning in to greater than code. You can leave us a review on your podcast app, or if you would like to join the conversation with all of us, you can donate to our Patreon at patreon.com slash greater than code get an invitation to the greater than code slack channel where we are very kind to each other the end button